I want to see what that dad bod can do out there. Not buying your banjos around the campfire. Shove them up your ass. It is football under the rough words. I'm your host, Mike McGillum. Got Zach Lines here with me. We both hope you had a good holiday weekend because it started off early. The Titans went ahead and gave you, gave you all a Christmas present on Thursday night football after a pretty rough start. 20 to 17 over the 49ers uh, come from behind victory in which the entire star of the show is AJ Brown. I mean, I shouldn't say the entire. The defense remains a uh, big dick out there. Just going insane. Zach, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, like you said, Titans win over an opponent that because of the injuries or the announcements that were made day of the game where there is no Lawan as well as no Saffold going up against a really good defensive line. The Titans really had no, no uh, business winning that game. And the, and to be honest with you, I mean, as a fan, you're always rooting for them. Or if you cover the team, I'm sure you would rather have a victory over a, a defeat, but let's be honest here. You, you saw how it started in the first half. And then you see how, you saw how it even started pregame. You're like, oh, this is going to be a long night. It really, yeah, it <laughs> complete tale of two halves. It was so bad at halftime, uh, just from an offensive production that the Titans defense held well through the whole game. But from an offensive production side, you were just thinking, damn, AJ, here AJ Brown is activated before the game. I don't see, you know, don't see the impact. It, it doesn't seem to be working. And then they come back out in the third and fourth quarter and just go bananas. Um, And and I'm going to start with A.J. Brown. So A.J. activated day of the game um, and and just had himself an absolute monster night. 11 receptions, 145 yards. He was averaging 13 yards of reception, had himself a touchdown. Um, But it's just the ridiculousness in what he was doing when he was on the field. Um, He accounted for what, 70% of the team's yardage? Do I mean, do I have that correct? I'm sure you do. Uh, I I didn't, I've never even really thought about it that way. I know he had like probably 90% of the uh, passing yardage. Well, okay, I I apologize. It's 69.4% of Tennessee's receiving yards, more than any NFL player in a game this season. And he had eight catches on third down, most by any player since 1978. Just (laughs) 69.4%? <laughs> I know of it, the passing offense. That seems like that was off. It seemed like more than that. Uh, and I believe he had eight was it either seven or eight third down conversions. The oh, man yeah, was a ridiculous. Monster. And it wasn't, there was no, um, I was really afraid of a rusty game. I was afraid we were going to get AJ Brown back and it was going to be a few good receptions. And then that's it. Cause he's still trying to get his feet under him. No came right back out in the second half and showed you, why he is what he is and why Ryan Tannehill, this offense and this damn fan base needed this man back on the field. Well, I also think it shows you the level of player that he is, right? You talk about knocking, needing to knock rust off a game. He may have had to take a few plays in the game to knock off the rust, but it gives me also hope for Derrick Henry whenever he comes back. Let's say he comes back just for the playoff game. Listen, it's probably going to take two or three plays for him to knock off that rust, just like it took A.J. Brown, because they're elite players. I wish people would stop treating elite players like they're fucking Mason Kinsey trying to come back from an injury, right? I mean, like, let's give me a freaking break on babying these players and worried about rust. Elite players always come prepared to play. A.J. Brown you know, in spite of drops or just having a bad game, they come to play. And you saw in that game what we've all basically, well, not all, but I would say most of the smart podcasts around us have been saying for a while, and we definitely have on this podcast, is that A.J. Brown is means more to the success of this offense for the regular season than Derrick Henry. It, this team did not need Derrick Henry back. You saw how the team has rushed without him. This team needed A.J. Brown back. Ryan Tannehill, when asked about the prospect of A.J. Brown come back for this game, looked like a man that had taken five Viagras. I mean, this guy was so pumped to have A.J. Brown back. I mean, he's been throwing to basically the 
cranberry side item of wide receivers over here in <laughs> these fucking wide receivers. They've been awful. And what's funny to me is that you still saw Nick Westbrook-Kikine get his because Ryan Tannehill has a level of comfortability with him. But it's, none of these guys can match what A.J. Brown be, brings. A.J. Brown allows Ryan Tannehill to be aggressive and just fucking throw it up. Like, that, you know, everybody's been saying, why doesn't Tannehill make these aggressive tight window throws? It's because half the guys can't even catch wide open throws. I mean, you saw even Nick Westbrook-Kine just two weeks ago, two games ago, basically drop a wide open pass. He trusts A.J. Brown. That is so huge, and you just saw it on display. It was such a welcome relief. And But I'll say this, and I still want to talk more about A.J. Brown. That first half did not meet, did not instill me with a lot of confidence that we were going to see second half AJ Brown. And it was an incredible game takeover performance. Like, I, I can't remember. It's, it's like when Derrick Henry does it, but Derrick Henry, you see these spurts throughout the whole game and you know he's going to take it off. You know, he's going to take over a game because of what you see at the beginning. You didn't see that out of AJ. You were like, oh, this this offense just can he cannot overcome this offense. And sure enough, AJ's like, no, I'm taking over this game. And it was one of the most spectacular performances that I can remember just of this season. A whole half of domination by one player. You saw a whole drive. He just dominated on third down continually down the field. Like you said, all those third down conversions, they knew the ball was coming to him at times. AJ Brown had three guys. Basically by the time he got the ball, three guys ready to tackle him. They knew, and they still couldn't stop it. If this is the AJ Brown that we see for the rest of the year, it's an unstoppable force of nature. And just, you're just basically taking what is already a tornado in A.J. Brown, let's throw in a hurricane or an earthquake as well in Derrick Henry when he comes back. And you just got a, a, basically an unbeatable force of nature on offense that hopefully can overcome the play-calling deficiencies of the offensive coordinator. Which, of course, we're going to touch on as well. Todd Downing, uh, oh boy, had himself a hell of a terrible first game in the first half, or, for, or game in the first half, I should say. But again, I got to stick with with AJ Brown for a second. Like you said, it 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 really it, here. Let me pull up the stats of what the rest of the wide receivers did. Nick Westbrook two receptions, thirty eight yards. Anthony Ferkser one reception, thirteen yards. Jeff Swain three receptions, ten yards. That sounds a lot like the stat line we've been reading for the last few weeks. And that's kind of the painful part about this is that it, it, Ryan Daniel needed AJ Brown back so damn bad, and I think this team had to have some sort of offensive production starting this week, or this gets out of hand really quickly. Take a look at teams like Baltimore. Take a look at teams like the Cardinals. I, I'm throwing names out there that they have differing problems on uh, with their team and with their offense specifically, but Baltimore and the Cardinals start off hot. B Baltimore and the Cardinals look like they would be lucky to make it in the playoffs. Baltimore, especially, if they make it in the playoffs, would be an absolute miracle. This, the Titans very well could have been in a scenario where they were looking like Arizona. They were looking like Baltimore and not being able to control their own destiny and control their path into the playoffs if they couldn't get some sort of offensive production. And AJ Brown steps up to provide that. The, the thing that kind of makes me giggle about it is at the beginning of the season, and I've made fun of it too. There was a lot of hype around who's going to stop an offense that features Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Julio Jones. Derrick Henry's been hurt. This team badly needs him back. But Julio Jones is still a non-factor. He was pretty much out there in the game as a decoy against the 49ers, and it kind of didn't matter. A.J. Brown is that piece they absolutely had to have on the field at the perfect time, and he came back and had a monster, monster game exactly when this team needed it. And let me say this about Julio Jones. You know, the, the defenses are not scared of Julio Jones. Right. You, 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 can, you can see it and you can watch it. And they're, they're, listen, not everybody that works in the NFL that is a coaching staff, when they're scouting a, an opponent, they look at game film, right? But they also know that this guy has probably been going through a bunch of injuries and they don't have to expend a bunch of resources to him. They know that Derrick Henry is not back there and they don't have to expend a bunch of resources to it, you know, and this and that. 
you ha- obviously you have to account for Julio Jones, right? You have to put a, a guy on Julio Jones. You can't leave him wide open. That's all that it takes is, is just one guy. In fact, his one catch, he was covered by a linebacker. I'm not saying that Julio Jones can't turn into next year the Julio Jones that we've all hoped for. And hell, I hope that he does it in the playoffs. But right now, Julio Jones is not scaring opposing defenses. Defensive coordinators are game planning ways to make sure that Julio Jones stays pretty much well covered and trying to stop A.J. Brown at this point. And I don't know. I think Miami will be a good test for that because you have two really good starting cornerbacks with Miami. But when you get down to Houston, I I think A.J. Brown changes everything for this team versus Houston. I mean, it's just he changes everything for this team, regardless of who you play, because he he I know people said this about Julio for these last few weeks, and we all kind of fold ourselves into thinking it. A.J. Brown is a guy is the guy that defenses have to play for because he's fully healthy. He's not playing through a hamstring issue. He's not playing through any issues. If you looked at the game this last weekend, you're talking about a guy that is fully healthy. Julio has not been that guy all year. So, and he has no chemistry with Tannehill. AJ Brown has all the chemistry. AJ Brown is the guy that makes the offense go until Derrick Henry comes back. And I'm so glad to see him. It even helped. I think, I feel like it even helped the offensive line who had a really great, night of basically protecting Ryan Tannehill, in my opinion, for what they were going up against. Let's talk about the opposite side of that coin with Tannehill. Um, He had uh, 22, 29, 209 yards and one touchdown. Uh, No turnovers, no interceptions, no fumbles. We're definitely going to touch on the turnover point here in just a bit, but um, fantastic on third down in the second half of the game. Um, And again, he had his main weapon back in in AJ, which helped immensely. But you also saw yet another play with Ryan Tannehill when the team absolutely had to have it. 24-yard scramble for a first down, puts him at San Fran's 31-yard line, puts him well into field goal territory to go ahead and and, uh, put large Randall out there for a chance. But Tannehill puts it out, puts his body on the line when the team needs it, but was making smart decisions, getting it to AJ Brown in the second half, it honestly looked like a kid in the second half who finally had his favorite toy back. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it's, it's phenomenal. Ryan Tannehill, you know, he, he, he struggled. Like I feel so bad for the guy given the way, listen, he had, this team has me praying that Rashard Matthews and Delaney Walker were back on this team playing for, for the Tennessee Titans. I Listen, if Rashard Matthews and Harry Douglas had took snaps for a couple of these games, you'd be looking at some Titans wins. I mean, that's how bad <laughs> this offense has been. And, you know, I kind of, maybe not to get into too much of a tangent, but I kind of got into a little side argument about taking Russell Wilson and Ryan Tannehill and swapping their situations for the year. Would it be any different? Because, you know, obviously people are going to start saying, well, Titans should trade Ryan Tandale for Russell Wilson. Would this season have been any different with Russell Wilson? Doubtful. I mean, I am, I would bet totally against it because you're talking about Russell Wilson, who is behind a better pass blocking line. And it's, it's by uh, 14 spots in the NFL pass block win rate, who has two better receiving weapons than Ryan Tannehill has had consistently all year because Tyler Lock and DK Metcalf have played almost every game, if I'm not mistaken, for the for the Seattle Seahawks. Not only that, Gerald Everett and Will Deasley, I would do some unnatural, ungodly, illegal things to have those guys as tight ends right now. Like we're talking bottom of the barrel tight ends of the Tennessee Titans, and I would sell my soul to have Gerald Everett. And Will Disley. Now, this is to say this. A.J. Brown is better than both D.K. Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. But the combination of Tyler Lockett and D.K. Metcalf are obviously would have changed the tide for this team. Here's what I'll say about this situation. You put Ryan Tannehill in Seattle and their situation for all for the uh, all the way through to week, week 16 and put Russell Wilson here in Tennessee. You're going to see the same outcome in Tennessee. And we'd be talking about Seattle probably contending for the NFC championship. 
that's how I feel about Ryan Tannehill in the situations he's been because also Russell Wilson has not only that, the better offensive coordinator as well. Russell Wilson has dropped down since the back half of 2019, and nobody wants to talk about it except for a few people, but he does not look the same. And some people are going to chalk it up to the injury, but even before the injury, he was not looking good. Yeah, he's thrown eight touchdowns since being back from uh, finger surgery, and he looks off. It's It's not just a couple of games that he's looked rough. He has looked pretty inconsistent for about six games now. Throwing, you know, underthrowing receivers, throwing it in the dirt. <laughs> all that to say, like his, yeah. Let me just say, all that to say is that Aaron Rodgers is the only quarterback that could do anything better in my mind. You know, maybe Tom Brady, doubtful, wins an extra game, or maybe Patrick Mahomes wins one extra game. But Aaron Rodgers is the only one that probably could have taken those losses and turned them all into wins because Aaron Rodgers is the freaking greatest quarterback ever. Like. Ryan Tannehill is not, and he. I think he's done, like, outside of the Texans game, as good a job as anybody could do with the offenses that he has had during these losses, and sometimes even during the wins. I do want to touch on uh, the running game quickly because when you've got a wide receiver who's out there doing things, you don't have to rely on a running game that was trying to get it done by committee, and they've been doing okay, but not not a ton of success out of them uh, for this game. I'm trying to see who the tough rusher was. Jeremy McNichols, seven carries, 31 yards. Um, Ryan Tannehill, the next highest rusher, three carries for 22 yards. We know where all that production came from on the one carry. But again, Hilliard, Foreman, McNichols running as a committee, uh, you know, combined for about 70 yards on the ground. Not a great performance. The Titans didn't necessarily need it, even though Foreman got himself into the end zone for a TD. Um, But that's the difference maker. When you've got someone in A.J. Brown who's moving the ball, when Ryan Tannehill has got someone in the the field that he can actually target, you're not having to rely on this half-name committee of three running backs to try to equal any kind of performance that Derrick Henry may put up for you. Yeah, and and that was the thing that we talked about when Derrick Henry went, went down, right, is that you need three running backs to maybe get you 100 yards. It's going to have to go into the passing offense. The only problem with that, since Derrick Henry went down, is that the passing offense has filled a bunch of Amish children out there that don't even know how to play the game of football. So, like, it's just it's just <laughs> been a shit show. Like, to, to come out and be 10-5 and five after 15 games – with the crap we've seen this team field on offense is amazing. It's just such an amazing feat that I, I'm still in awe of how important that win streak was, the win, the, the win streak that we thought was the most improbable thing of the whole year was them going on that win streak. And they still went on it, and I'm just – Right now, it wasn't pretty for 15 games. It wasn't easy for 15 games. But God dang it, I love this team. I, I want to talk about Raidens. Um, we're going to talk about his hat in a minute. No, but I want to talk about Raidens. This offensive line, the team was dealt a really shitty hand coming into this game with uh, Luan being out, COVID problems with Lamb. Dylan Raiden suddenly in an emergency situation is put into a position where he was going to have to start and perform. And this team has pretty much made it loud and clear by him not being on the field that they didn't have a lot of confidence in him. So I, I can tell you within our group chat, I was definitely one of them who thought if the Titans lose this game and they're going to lose it because of this offensive line, it's because this O-line comes apart. And I thought Raidens was going to be one of the major problems. Um, step, and again, steps up in an emergency situation, and you're just saying Bosa's going to run all over this guy. And eventually, as uh, Mello put it in his article, article, Bosa had to pack his bags and move to the other side of the line because Raidens was holding him up. I, I mean, what can you say about this guy? Yes, he had some issues where he let a couple of guys get by him, but overall, he had a great game. Look. He he had he had some major issues. I, the whole offensive line, it, it, I, I think Brewer was by far the worst performance of the of the game. But considering who they all went to and how much Aaron Brewer weighs, I mean he's not he's 
he's very light. He's like 260 pounds or something. Like he's incredibly light. I, I think the whole offensive line did a hell of a hell of a job. And I, I definitely want to point out Nate Davis later. And I, I but you know, our bookend tackles, it if, even when Nick Bosa went to the other side, he was still being, you know handled off pretty well and and maybe that's because there were tight ends helping but that's what good offensive game plans entail is making sure that you neutralize the best defensive player on the field and he was the best one and they did a pretty good job it wasn't perfect right i mean dylan radens's performance wasn't perfect but you're talking about a guy who hadn't taken a left tackle snap since october of 2020 right in college no game time snaps since then and we're all we're over a year later, and this regime has prevented this guy from getting meaningful playing time at the spot that he's more natural in because we saw him play in the preseason at right tackle and right guard because they're trying to do this, make him a swing tackle for whatever reason, and putting him on a side that he's not comfortable with. Look, I get it. You you drafted the guy hoping that he would be your right tackle answer. Well, he's only going to be a right tackle answer if you train him only at right tackle and give him meaningful playing time. The, the, he deserves he deserves to be the next man up when Taylor Lewan goes down. And that's one of been one of the main issues about him is that when Lewan goes down, and see it's Kendall Lamb. Lewan and Kendall Lamb are down. They're putting in Bobby fucking Hart, uh, you know, that guy in there. They're, 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 they find creative ways to make sure that Kendall Lamb never saw the left side of the line. Against inferior defensive lines compared to Nick Bosa and defensive players. So it's just odd to me. It raises a lot of questions for me. Why does this staff value being a veteran or being a bud more than, more than oh, so much? I was going to say more than something, but it didn't really wasn't coming out. But why do they value that so much? Because in all honesty, I, I think I would have been okay with Dylan Raidens starting the whole year at right tackle. It couldn't have been much worse than what you got out of Questenberry. But the only reason that Questenberry got the start is because it, he's been around longer. I mean, at some point, I guess we just got to accept the fact that this staff, unless there's injuries, or unless you are playing at an unbelievable level, like Elijah Molden is a good example. If you're a rookie, you're not seeing the field a lot. That's just what the staff is. And I, I, I mean, AJ Brown's the rare exception again, elite player and also in a player a position of need, but it took a little bit for AJ Brown to get the snaps that he deserved. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get why they're scared. And all this stuff, at some point, a little trial by fire is okay. You know, Questenberry did play well at the beginning of the year, but he started telling off at some point at the bye, you could have installed Raidens, right? When Taylor Lawan goes down, you could put Raidens over there. I, I don't get it. It's like Kendall Lamb is not even, or wasn't even, they brought in to be a right tackle and he wasn't even a factor in it. Like the whole, this whole offensive line situation, when, I was in the Hendersonville Lowe's block, uh, parking lot hearing Buck talk about that. And I even paused and sent text messages around because I was like, did I hear that right? That they were trying to play him at right guard at the very first report. I was like, what the fuck are they doing? And they have met, to me, what Raiden showed on Thursday is a player that you least know can play somewhere on the offensive line as a starter in 2022, unlike that washed-up loser Isaiah Wilson and what was looking to be his trajectory so far this year in Dylan Raidens, at least in the many questions that we have in 2022 about this offensive line, you've at least found one answer in him, and it looks like one answer in Nate Davis. Nate Davis looks to be back. Right, and that's... Your last part there is what it, it gives me pause and gives me a little hope with Raidens that because we, we know going into 2022, the Titans are again going to have to address the offensive line. We're all bracing ourselves for again, probably a top pick being used on the O-line and we're just going to have to watch our head rolls around, roll around on our shoulders again. But 
I don't even know if I'm going to put this correctly and it may come out to sounding stupid, but it, it kind of drives me nuts to see this team let Dennis Kelly go. Right. Right. And Dennis Kelly was a risk at right tackle that they stuck with for quite a while. And then, so this team will show risk at, at, at letting an O-line develop himself on the field, but you're right. They keep Raiden's out all year. If you wanted him to play right tackle or, or, or if he's going to get meaningful snaps at right, he has to be on the damn field for this to work. That, and I agree with you about We've had this discussion before trying not to get too far on this tangent, but I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm over the whole so-and-so looked good in practice practice and game time are oh. just so much different. And for this O-line that has had so many problems, especially on the right-hand side of it, and Raidens gives you that performance, which again was not perfect, but considering who he had to go against and the situation he was put into, played pretty damn well. That's he should be out there for the rest of the season at right. Yeah, I I I worry about that. I, I will say this: the I think that right tackle for next year is is a much better idea than putting Raidens in right now. And and here's what I'll say is that I know Questenberry got beat up, you know, in a good string of games. I mean, we're talking about a guy who came off 11 pressures in one game and then turns around against when he gets Nick Bosa, only has one pressure, right? I mean, like, you know, it's it's a very up and down thing with Questenberry. But at this point, if you're looking to build consistency on the offense, you have to keep Q in. Because at this point, you have Super Bowl aspirations. You have number one seed, playoff seeding to worry about. Right tackles not Raiden's most comfortable spot. It's not his natural position. So I worry. I'm all about trial by fire, but trial by fire should have been probably you know a long time ago. I worry about doing that now against maybe Miami. Maybe you want to do it in the Texans game and see how he holds up. But I worry about doing it now in that you're just you're you're adding something to the other side of Nate Davis that again Nate Davis is now comfortable right he looks great he's mowing Fred Warner down and all this stuff what if you put Raidens down there and now Nate Davis looks like shit again that's what i worry about the consistency that you're looking for in an offensive line and when they should have plugged Raidens in should have been way way earlier when they were still trying to find a groove I'm not saying that the groove is found but hopefully Taylor Lewan comes back off the COVID list, you know, and Roger Saffold comes back. And now you got Ben Jones and Nate Davis playing their best football in probably the last two weeks with those two. Do you really just want to get rid of Questenberry that bad? I mean, I feel like people forget that Questenberry was really, really good at the beginning of the year. And yeah. I'm not saying that he is our the future all pro right tackle but do you really want to risk putting Raidens, who allowed the most pressures, by the way, on the on the offensive line, over on the right tackle side at his most his least natural position? That's my concern. I'm all about this next year, though. I'm all about Raidens at right tackle next year. I'm even about Raidens at left tackle next year. If Taylor Lewan can't restructure that massive overpaying contract. I'm okay with that. I just worry about tinkering. It's like fantasy football you know, team, you wake up Sunday morning and something gets in your soul or in your brain. And you have this like earworm where you start tinkering with your roster and it yeah. always fucks up. Right. That's what I, I just worry about the tinkering roster tinkering. I'm not so sure about, but I, I love Raidens. Let me say this. What I like about Raidens is this, is that he probably should have played all year. I just worry about and putting them now into that position. All right. Let's talk about the two terrible, tired, terrible story of Todd Downing. <laughs> because I, I just don't, oh man, it's exhausting having to, to do this week in and week out. Flashes of brilliance mixed with flashes of what the fuck are you doing? Um, didn't put up a single point in the first half. I, second, second and long run calls, not moving the ball down the field. Didn't get his receivers, including A.J. Brown, involved until early in the second half. I don't, I, I just, it was almost like a miracle that they decided to get A.J. Brown involved. And then suddenly it's like, once he's involved, there was no going back to whatever 
crazy shit plan he wanted to run in the first half. But, oh, God, what are we doing? Look, I know that with Ryan Tannehill that Todd Downing has been dealt a shit hand. But here's the problem. You know all those A.J. Brown plays were that he called in the second half and A.J. Brown was having to make contested catches and tight window, you know, trying to have to make some spectacular catches. They weren't easy open catches, right? A lot of them were there. He had two guys near him or one guy near him and all this stuff. Those plays that he was calling were the same plays he was calling for Cody Hollister. Cody Hollister was running those routes earlier in the year. Here's my thing about Todd Downing is I was willing to give him about eight, eight, eight weeks, right? And nine to 10 weeks. That's really what Art got in his year. And and it took a lot to probably get into a group. At this point, I, I think that if you think that Todd Downing can be anywhere close to Art Smith, I think you're fooling yourself. Yeah. I, I think Todd Downing at his peak of an offensive coordinator in the NFL at maybe one drive, he will be an above average, maybe top 15 offensive coordinator. But I think he's a below average coordinator 90% of the time. And he's the most inconsistent coach I have seen in a long time here. And his situational play calling is horrendous. I Really hate it for the most part. It's it's really bad. His route spacing, I do not like it, you know, for the most part. And, but he, like you said, he has like a couple of plays where he looks really awesome. But at some point, we, we have to be honest about Todd Downing. Even if the Titans win a Super Bowl, is it really going to be because Todd Downing was calling the plays or is it going to be because of the defense and the players exceeding what the play call calls for because the expected EPA of some of these plays, Ryan Tannehill does a really good EPA, which is expected uh, points added, right? So that's what does he do extra to elevate a team? And I'm sure AJ Brown EPA was through the roof. The, the run game's probably about the same. I just feel like Todd Downey doesn't add anything. He's very un, he's very bland. And he's bland when AJ Brown and Julio are both on the field. He's bland. He was bland when Derrick Henry was on the field. I I think you're looking at a, a offensive coordinator that's closer to Terry Robisky and Jason Michael than he is Art Smith. That's what I think you got in Todd Downey. Can you win playoff games with that? Sure. You can. Is it going to take miraculous performances like Derrick Henry in the Kansas City game where he's throwing, going for 150 yards to Kansas City in the playoffs a, a couple of years ago with Terry Robisky? Is it going to take a, a A.J. Brown effort in the second half where after you score zero points in the first and you have you have negative nine yards on first down and negative nine or negative 16 yards on first down at the half and negative nine yards in screen passes? Yeah, it's going to take that. It's going to take the the players stepping up and outperforming their coach. That's what you're seeing. In my opinion, you're seeing a team that exceeds the offensive coordinator. I, I really I hope he's buying the entire defense a gift basket after every game because I think that his issues – are certainly being ma- well, not masked is probably not the right word, but are being there. Okay. I'll just say masked. They're being masked by a defense that is consistently keeping this team in games because having this kind of pathetic second and long running surrender runs on third, throwing behind the sticks on third and long, you can kind of get away with that crap and get some big plays out of the offense when you're only down 10, when you're only down 14, when you're still in a game situation that's manageable because your defense has put you in that position. We're already seeing a couple of games, especially in this late window. I mean, the Cowboys absolute domination on Sunday night football was, was pretty wild over Washington. The chiefs are another offense that put up big numbers. You know, if you you assume that you get down 21 to a team like the chiefs, having these goofy second and long runs and thrown behind the sticks and all that kind of crap, it's not going to get you anywhere. 
And so Downing owes a lot of gratitude to the defense playing the way they are for him still kind of getting away from this Jekyll and Hyde offense. And you're right. You've got players on the field that are overperforming the play calls that he's getting away with. And, and you are right that you could, you could probably still win a Super Bowl with this setup, but it's not going to be because of Downing. It's going to be because of the players on the field overperforming his playbook. I'm looking, I'm looking at the AFC. He is the ninth best offensive coordinator in the AFC. And I, I think that you could probably make a debate that maybe he may be 10, maybe he may be eight, but I think he is the ninth best out of 16 teams in the AFC. In the NFC, I'm looking at, you know, Kellen Moore's better. Uh, Scott Turner's better, even though that his offense is being hindered by Tyler, uh, Taylor Henneke. Um, but I, I do see stuff on that team that makes them more creative. They always try to cr- get the ball in the hands of their playmakers. Um, I would say that I think personally, Anthony Lynn is better. Nathaniel Hackett is better. Clint Kubiak is better. Uh, I would say that Pete Carmichael's better. Byron Leftwich is better. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury's the de facto offensive coordinator in Arizona. He's better. I would say that Mike McDaniel down in San Francisco and Shane Waldron and the Rams. So that's 11 offensive coordinators right there in the NFC. So 11 there and then eight in the other one. That puts him at 20th. He's the 20th best offensive coordinator in the NFL, just going off the top of my head. And in my mind, I'm looking at this and thinking, we just saw the Tennessee Titans have arguably a top five offensive coordinator. Now, obviously when you have a top five offensive coordinator, they're going to get head coaching jobs and everything. But this was the problem with hiring Todd Downing was that you were going to get Oakland Raiders 2017 Todd Downing. And I think you're getting actually that without Mike Tice and Mike Tice helped that offense apparently go in loss in Oakland in 2017 and I think you're you're finding out that Todd Downing is just a top 20 guy. And that's that can help you. I mean, it's not going to hurt you technically, but it doesn't instill a lot of confidence going forward. I, I, you know, I'm not one for people losing their jobs or, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I would hate it because I know that Todd Downing's been around in the organization for a while. But at, I think there needs to be a serious conversation that if the Tennessee Titans fall short with a fully healthy offense, and I'm not including Julio in that, I'm including Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Ryan Tannehill, if they're all three healthy and you're still seeing the same stupid mistakes and the same thing that players can't overcome or they have to overcome the play calling, I think you have to seriously uh, consider a one-and-done tenure for Todd Downing, and I think people that want to give him another chance because of injuries – you can have injuries and still call better plays. That that is that's how I view it. Uh, you can't control injuries, but you can control how those injuries affect your team and affect your play calling. If you continue on with a headstrong mentality and just keep calling the same plays you would for AJ Brown and Julio Jones, Derrick Henry, that you would for Cody Hollister, Nick Westbrook, Akine, and Deontay Foreman, you're doing yourself a disservice. That's how I view it. One hundred percent. I got to talk about the Titans defense. They remain just an absolute pleasure to watch. Um, and, and again, the most important damn component on the field that is keeping this team in it while the offense gets and is getting healthy. Um, I'll start with Jag Rabbit Jenkins. San Francisco scored quick and scored early. Um, minute 40 left in the first. San Francisco's driving again. I think they're down on the eight-yard line. And it looks like San Francisco's on the verge of going up 14 nothing, which suddenly was starting to feel like a death knell to this game. And Jenkins grabs one of the end zone. I mean, absolute massive turnover. You had to have, it, it killed the, uh, the forward momentum and the forward progress of San Francisco of just, they felt like they were just about to start scoring over and over um, stopped them from a 14 and 0 start. And he was just one small component. Zach Cunningham was all over the field. Um, Baldy NFL network had such a good film breakdown, just showing, forgot how he phrased just something about the speed and the violence is how he put it of, of getting around and tackling players. Um, again, this defense is just, they're all over the place. They're clicking. 
and each individual group is getting their shit done out there. Yeah, even when Christian Fulton, arguably one of your best players out on the field at any given point, is getting put in a blender by Debo Samuel every chance. And and let me say this, he wasn't the only one getting put in a blender. These guys did not practice tackling, I guess, because they, they needed to tackle. What they should have done is gotten Jeffrey Simmons to run with the ball and then try to tackle Jeffrey Simmons in practice, <laughs> because that's like tackling Debo Samuel at this point. Um, it was, it was tremendous. And you, you saw how important that Jack rabbit interception was, and you saw how important it was to the team and to coach Vrabel, who specifically said Jack rabbit saved us like that play saved the game for this team. And he said that in, in the locker room speech, which are always the best. I, I, I would find it very hard to believe that anybody can beat a Mike Vrabel locker room speech after a win. Um, but that, that was the game save and play. But this whole defense was flying around and they had a bead on everything. It was everything you could have want from defensive performance. Uh, but Dupree got a sack. I hope he comes off COVID soon. Just this team is this defense. Maybe it's just that I was so beaten down by 2020, but I put it out on Twitter. This is the most fun I've had watching defense for on the Tennessee Titans ever. Yeah. And look, and people are like, oh, guess you weren't a fan back in 2008, even though I was at all the fucking games. So fuck you. Um, <laughs> like, I, I didn't say they were the best. I just said they were the most fun. Um, And I still think that sometimes it's just fun to watch your guys fly around, create turnovers and just wreck people, wreck shop. And that's what you should want out of your defense is just a bull in a fucking China shop, just going to town, breaking all this stuff that you don't want, all the priceless artifacts. And they apparently even broke Jimmy G's finger and they definitely broke John Lynch, who doesn't even know how to use Twitter. Apparently he just in he's in church, apparently liking tweets about leave Garoppolo's ass in Nashville. Yeah. Oh boy, It's, it's, a, it's almost scene. as bad as uh, getting into Twitter arguments while you're watching Spider-Man uh, no way home. <laughs> I like that. Nice little bird. Some teammates here. So I, I want to throw this art. They, they really are playing the bend. Don't break defense to, to perfection. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, 26 for 35, 322 yards, one touchdown, two interceptions. Debo Samuel had a monster motherfucking game. And that's what gets lost in this nine receptions, 159 yards, averaging 17.7 per catch also had five carries for 32 yards, but here's the kicker, no touchdowns. And, and, that's really the, the key component here. The Titans were keeping San Francisco out of the end zone when they needed to also getting turnovers and driving Garoppolo to throw picks when they needed to and keeping Debo Samuel out of the end zone. That's a, those are big accomplishments. This is coming into the game with the Titans offensive line problems and then watching those early drives, the, the first drive, which San Francisco scored pretty quick, and then they're coming down the field again right before Jack Rabbit gets the pick, th- this was starting to build into my worst-case scenario of shit. This is going to be over before the end of the second half, and I'm not going to have anything to watch. Um, credit to the Titans defense. Though. They kept them in it. They're all over the field, and I do agree with you. This is the most fun I've had watching a unit run all over the field. I mean, yes, the early 2000s team, where you had Javon curse and them, that was fun too. But this is, this whole unit is just clicking and they're in on it. And I got to go back to Zach Cunningham real quick. I loved Baldy's film because I, it's just, I'm reading too much into this, but it's watching a player getting out of a bad situation in Houston on the field, playing with the speed and violence he wants to, and looks like he's having fun playing football again. Yeah, you're not reading too much into it. That's exactly what it is. I mean, that's, I mean, like, that's exactly, I mean, what, it exactly is. what it is. I mean, you, you're reading <laughs> in exactly the correct amount. You know, at, at some point in this year, uh, someone put out, you know, uh, they put out a yearly list, a midseason list, I think, every year of head coaching candidates, right? Young head coaching candidates. And Todd Downing was on the list. Shane Bowen wasn't. 
if anything, if I am a guy looking at all these teams and I want to interview a young coach, I'm looking at Shane Bowen. Now, you don't know how much is Jim Schwartz or whatever. I, I think Shane Bowen deserves a lot of the credit, right? I, I really do think he does. But if I'm choosing any of the offensive coordinators to be my coach of the next team, it's definitely not going to be Todd Downey. It's most definitely going to be Shane Bowen. And this this defense is having a blast. And let me say this. If it wasn't for uh, Christian Fulton wearing uh, flip-flops out there, he Debo Samuel would have been contained a little bit better than what he was. I'm not saying that he wouldn't have gone, you know, for a hundred yards, but he may would have had 53 less yards, right? There was a lot of blown plays, but this, this defense did its job. And that is the, that's the story of the season. I mean, it's yeah. Does the story is the offense kind of sucks and there's a lot of injuries, but the main story is the defense that we've been talking about every week. It almost seems like almost every week, except for one, we have come on to this show and talked about how great the defense was and how, how about the plays that Elijah Molden made, or how about the plays that Christian Fulton made, or man, Harold Landry, Jeffrey Simmons, Bud Dupree, uh, Tierra Tartan makes a couple of plays, Naquan Jones, but, um, and not to mention Dane Crookshank, who is having, he's like a, a, he's a tight end destroyer. I mean, he's a destroyer of worlds and dreams and despair. It doesn't matter if you're George <laughs> Kittle. It doesn't matter if you're Travis Kelsey. He don't give a fuck. His Twitter name is Dane Too Smooth, and I agree with him. He is too smooth. And what a turnaround, especially for me. This is an egg on my face because I'm the guy has been saying that he should be on the roster bubble and be cut because he couldn't stay healthy. And here he is, is some kind of just a, uh, he's basically Thanos taking on the ass guardians by himself and just demolishing the incredible Hulk and throwing them out of the, uh, whatever that spaceship was called. Like, give me a break. This guy is just wrecking tight ends and it's unbelievable. Unbelievable that this Dane Crookshank, six-round draft pick, back in 2019, 20, no, 2018, I think, is doing what he's doing at this level. There is no, listen, I don't think there is a safety out there that has been able to watch both Travis Kelsey and uh, George Kittle in, in a single season. There, there can't be. They always get theirs for the most part. And if you, it's just, it's amazing. He's been able to do it twice and props to him props to the coaching staff and whatever they've done to prepare this defense to, to let Dane take these guys out of the equation. Kind of the last thoughts on this win before we move on, talk about the dolphins. Um, I'm pleased to see this team get it together. The defense stay consistent but the offense get it together when they needed to, and especially A.J. Brown to come back in the fashion that he did because that that game was absolutely the razor's edge of a team that still wholly controls its destiny and, oh, by the way, is not so far-fetched out of the running for the first seed. A damn good position to maintain the second seed, which is very good running into the playoffs, depending how that comes out. Or the flip side of that is, being on the ass end of the wild card spot and kind of eyeballing a duffel bag in the corner talking about locker clean out because th- if you, if the Titans lose this game, shit gets out of control pretty quickly. That's not the case. And there's so many teams that are in that position. Uh, the dolphins that are coming in, which we'll hit on in a minute, they've won six in a row, but they had to win six in a row. They're sitting at seven and seven, and depending on, we're obviously recording this before Monday night football, depending on how it plays off for them tonight the Dolphins have to have to win out to keep their season alive. Um, but pivotal for the Titans. This again, to me is why teams that can pull off the performance that they did against the 49ers are the ones that separate themselves from good teams to teams that can make runs into the playoffs. And so still plenty of hope, goodwill, very good feelings for this team. Very pleased by that win. And it didn't feel that way in the first quarter, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, and considering that Mike Frabel had been fired like four or five times at the beginning of the season, sure. it's remarkable that he was able to overcome all that adversity and be basically spoken like 
he is top two candidates for coach of the year among NFL execs and GMs, and he should be because of what he's had to deal with and how he continues to win games. He's three and one versus AFC. He beat the Bills. He swept the Colts. He beat the Rams. He's he's done everything you're looking for. He's beaten some good teams. Let's say he's lost to some shitty teams and he's had some bad losses. That that, that you know, yeah, that's happened. But nobody has done more with less than Mike Frabel this whole year. Nobody. And for him to get to 10 and 5 and have the chance to be 12 and 5 at the end of the year and possibly the number one seed, even though that everybody said a few weeks ago is impossible. Don't worry about it. Only worry about the AFC South. Quit talking ahead. Cause like what we say matters. They have a chance to do to get, he has a chance to have it all 12 win team, his star running back, coming back, his elite wide receiver on the field, his quarterback looking better, his defense playing lights out. And he's going to have maybe home playoffs throughout the whole playoffs and possibly a bye week. The coach of the year. I mean, I don't care if he finishes number two seed and 11 and six. That is your coach of the year. Not Bill Belichick, who is being dragged down by Mac Jones. Not Sean McDermott, who got out coached in a snow game a few weeks ago. Not Brandon Staley, who has done the same with the same squad that Anthony Lynn has done, except for they've gotten worse on defense. Not Cleef Kingsbury, who couldn't even put away the Colts last week. Unbelievable. Uh, none of these guys does, have done what Mike Vrabel has done, in my opinion. And it, Mike Vrabel deserves Coach of the Year, and I'm ready for it. I'm ready for him to get it. Back. Mac Jones, and I can't find the tweet while you were talking about it, but Mac Jones and that what was that caller called into the New England radio oh, station? Yeah. His, ru- his rub arm or however he put it. I think a raggedy arm. Oh, raggedy, <laughs> raggedy arm. If you haven't heard that tweet, we'll, we'll retweet it. I'll see your caller into a New England radio station just coming unglued. No, you're exactly right. Coach of the year candidate should be coach of the year candidate. Um, has dealt with more damn adversity in a team than I, I've seen in a long time, and he's keeping this unit bought in. Uh, lesser coaches, lesser men lose that locker room pretty quickly, and that shit gets hairy really quickly when you lose your starters on offense and things start to look bleak. That's an easy situation for young men to start to come unglued and stop believing in each other, and he's he's not allowing that to happen. Um, I, I do want to point out real quick, because you tweeted something out earlier um, that I get to read into a lot. But so Tom Pelissero was saying this morning that Derrick Henry may even be back before week 18 to, quote, knock some rust off. Yeah, they, they're, they're saying before the playoffs, he, he's hearing it sounds like maybe Derrick Henry will be back week 18 to knock some rust off. Um, I mean, that's kind of what we all thought, unless you're Adam Schefter, who uh, has basically never mentioned Derrick Henry's name since that one Monday night football report or whatever it was has not mentioned Derrick Henry's name in the least uh, the whole time he's been recovering. I mean, let's, let's, you know, talk about that a little bit later, uh, maybe in a separate podcast about the shortcomings of Adam Schefter and the lack of culpability that he is given. But um, yeah, I mean, this is what we kind of expected would it be nice to see him in Houston? I guess maybe. Like, I'm I'm not really too concerned if he comes back week 18 or the playoffs. As long as he's coming back on the playoffs, that's all I care about. And that's all you need him for. You don't you don't have to have, oh, he's gotta knock off that rust. I just don't I, I don't elite players don't need the rust knocked off. I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, plus his presence in the backfield alone changes the defensive game immediately. Derrick Henry active in a game causes an opposing team to look at that game plan like, oh, shit, time to load the box again. That opens up more opportunities for A.J. Brown. No, you're exactly right. I mean, just his, just his presence alone, doesn't. you don't need to worry about the knocking off rust part. Um, COVID uh, with the Tennessee Titans, we'll talk about that real quick. Activated from reserve, uh, COVID-19 reserve, Roger Saffold, Elijah Molden, Placed on um, COVID-19 reserve as of today, Monday, the what, 28th, uh, Bud Dupree, Julio Jones, Buster Scrine, Nick Westbrook, Akina. 
Um, <laughs> considering Nick Westbrook, Keita has been the number two wide receiver for multiple weeks now. That one kind of bothers me. And Buster Scrine, I mean, that man's had his shit together the last few weeks after I made a crack about raise your hand if you've heard of Buster Scrine before today and I put him down your filthy liars. Um, he's had his name called out multiple times in multiple games. Um, I, I think three of the four are, are big. And yeah. the, th- the three are Bud Dupree, NWI, and uh, Buster. I think those are those are huge. It's it's great that they got Molden back, right? If, if Buster's going to go on COVID list, it's good that Molden came off of it. Like all these guys can technically, unless reported otherwise, that by the time this recording hits, that they someone's unvaccinated on this list, they're all able to come off as soon as they get two negative tests. And depending on the negative uh, the test that you take, they could be done concurrently, so at the same time. And so you could uh, technically, as long as you're fully vaccinated and asymptomatic for 24 hours, no symptoms for 24 hours, you could start taking the test. And once you take the test, you could take two a day and try to get them all in the same day. It's not where you have to wait 24 hours to take one test and 24 hours take another one. If you get it in the same day and two negative tests, you're back on the field the next day. Yeah. So technically all of these players can come back by the Miami Dolphins game unless one of them is unvaccinated. There is no minimum stay as long as you get the two negative tests. And you need Bud Dupree. If I was putting them in order of importance, I would say Bud Dupree 1A, Nick Westbrook-Akina 1B, and then I would do Buster, and then I would do a distance of Julio. Because at this point, the less snaps that someone like Golden Tate or Racy McMath or Des Fitzpatrick sees, the better. And I don't know if Julio Jones missing really changes too much as much as NWI, as much as they both miss. I guess if you if I had to choose, just bring me one of them back because I don't need to see versus Byron Jones and Xavier Howard. I don't need to see old ass Golden Tate. I don't need to see. Um, Cody Hollister or any of these guys, I at least need to see some wide receivers that actually can contribute unless they're just going to throw AJ Brown to AJ Brown all game. And listen, if that's what they choose to do, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with going to AJ Brown every freaking play. Ryan Tannehill revenge game. Miami Dolphins coming to town um, Sunday, January 2nd at noon. Um, they are playing the Saints in Monday Night Football. Now, by the time you listen to this, uh, we will already know the outcome of that. Um, against the Saints, it's pretty much a must-win game. The, it, the Dolphins are a must-win all the way through, <laughs> all the way through their schedule. Um, <clears throat> Dolphins are coming in. Let's pretend the Saints game has a way. Dolphins are coming in six in a row after starting one and seven. But let me throw out who they've won against. Um, the Jets, the Panthers, the Giants. The Jets again, um, and I may be missing one there. I am. But, uh, Baltimore, uh, I think. Baltimore and the Texans. God, I've missed two. So not the greatest list of teams when you look at it, especially in retrospect, though the Titans did lose to the Jets, whatever. But it, it, this is not exactly a high-powered offense that's coming in, but they're certainly not a team <clears throat> to be counted out. They're definitely more difficult then the Steelers, the Steelers just are atrocious looking. The Titans, unfortunately, lost to them. But the Dolphins are certainly not one to be counted out. I do want to throw out this side note because I've seen a lot of fans posting this. And again, by the time you listen to this, Monday Night Football will already be over. We'll be in later in the week. But a lot of Titans fans are kind of, you know, all over the place about, oh, my God, they're calling for snow on Sunday. Listen, weather forecasts are useless until you're three days out from an actual event. The way weather modeling works it doesn't start to become accurate till about three days out. So for all those that are looking at their crap weather apps that are saying it's called for an inch and a half of snow on Sunday, that's just, it's what they call European models don't know what to do with precipitation. So they throw out a worst case scenario there at the end. So let's just throw that out there. But that being said, the dolphins are still another one of those teams that can get away from you. If you don't handle your business. They're an efficient, well-coached team on both offense and defense. Um, very rarely do you see them have a game littered with mental mistakes and errors. They're, they're not the most exciting team to watch, 
Um, now Tua has had his moments, but you're, you're Tua's right now is probably the very definition of a um, high quality game manager. And I think Tua is doing a tremendous job given that, you know, free agent Will Fuller has been a total bust. Who could have saw that coming? Um, and then he's his second best receiver is Devontae Parker or Mike Jasicki, depending on how you view it. But they they just play really good football. And when you if you discount a team like the Titans should beat the Dolphins, right? But they are not a team that I think they're a team they match up well from the defensive side of the Titans defense versus the Miami offense. This Miami defense is really good. And like I said earlier, you're talking about uh, two really, really great corners over there in Miami. And they have good linebackers. And they have a, a Javon Holland who is playing out of this world right now. And they just have people that are going to make you pay at every level of that defense. Their defense is built a lot like ours. Uh, Raquan Davis at the nose, Christian Wilkins at the end. You're talking about they have Jalen Phillips coming off the edge, who has looked really good. Uh, Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, like I said, they are two shutdown corners in their own right. You know, it's not going to be easy sledding. This is not a San Francisco defensive back unit that sucks. This is a really, really good defense. This is going to be a good slugfest of a game. And I still predict that the Titans win, but the Titans are really going to have to be efficient. And they're going to have to rely on A.J. Brown, and they're going to have to rely on their run game because you don't want to turn into a one-dimensional team versus the Miami Dolphins at this stage of the game. And you can't be the the turnover-prone team that you've been. Right now you don't have to worry about their rushing offense. And they are the 30th ranked rushing offense in the NFL. We are the, if we're not the best, Tennessee Titans are the best rush defense in the league. We're damn near close. And so you don't have to worry about that. And you don't really have to worry about their passing game. You got to worry about their rush defense and you got to make sure that you just don't turn the ball over because if you turn the ball over, an efficient team like this is going to make you pay for it. And if you get the ball turned over, you got to turn around and score some points. And that's something that Titans up until last week have struggled with is getting points off turnovers. I was glad to see that that turned around. You got to start off hot and you got to start off fast against the Miami Dolphins. Let me put this out there before we wrap this up. Um, Mike Herndon put out a good tweet that lays it out pretty simply. Titans path to the one seed is pretty clear now. They need to win one more game um, over. They need to win one more game than the Chiefs do over the next two weeks to vie for the one seed. Uh, obviously, Tennessee um, has Miami coming to town, then at Houston to close out the season. Kansas City is at Cincinnati and at Denver to close out the season. Neither one of those matchups are exactly gimmies. And if Cincinnati plays like anything they did on Sunday, that's actually going to be a pretty tough game for the Chiefs. So this is not out of the realm of possibility for the Titans to push for a one seed. Um, New England's loss to Buffalo is huge. That it's it's huge for seeding prospects. It's huge for the way the East lays out. It's huge also for seeding because even if the Titans go one of the playoffs at a two seed, the way the seeding would would shake out if you're assuming the Chiefs are still the one seed, um, Titans theoretically if they make it all the way would not have to deal with the Chiefs until the AFC championship game. And if the Chiefs were to lose before then in the playoffs, Titans could have the championship game at home. So to, it, the mission for the Titans is simple, went out and let yeah. the cards w- fall where they lie. But the cards could fall in a very good position for the Titans and are set up to already land in a good position for the Titans if they just go out there and do their job. I am so pissed that it's so hard to flex a CBS game. Yes. Because when you think about it, the Titans, Dolphins, and or, and I'd really rather than flex the Chiefs Bengals game, they're on at the same time. How unfair is that as a Titans fan? And even as a Chiefs fan or Bengals fan, that you can't watch both those sets of games because all that those games have huge implications. If the Bengals lose and the Titans win, 
the Titans are all of a sudden in the one seat, right? I mean, like they're in the driver's seat. It's it's amazing after they were declared dead when Derrick Henry went down. They were declared dead out of the one seed race just a few weeks ago by many people across the Nashville media. And here they are proving everybody wrong. They're not dead. They're alive. And I would love, I would so love to watch the Chiefs Bengals game at the same time I could watch Titans Dolphins game. And it's a disservice by the NFL to allow that to happen when CBS's afternoon games currently sit at 49ers versus Texans and Denver versus Chargers. You can't flex one of those back to the noon game like San Francisco at Houston. Give me a break. Like nobody (laughs) wants to watch that in the afternoon. Bring me Kansas City and the Bengals in the afternoon game. CBS, you fucking cowards. (laughs) <laughs> I know Monday night football doesn't play into it, but I just want to at least point out that Monday night football next week is Browns at the Steelers. Gross. Disgusting. That is disgusting. As a matter of fact, I think we got that game last year, but it at least still had playoff implications. Brown Steelers on Monday night football next week could have absolutely no playoff implications. That is an absolutely disgusting game, uh, but you're exactly right. It, it drives me nuts that that's going to be happening at the same time. I guess the only good way you can look at it is by the time the Titans are closing their game out, you're going to know right then pretty much if the Titans have a shot at the one seed or not. So, well, one more game to go in this week, Dolphins at Saints. Um, <clears throat> I know Zach's going to be eagerly watching that. I am too, because I'm going to get a last quick look at the Dolphins before they come to town. Um, but as always, we really appreciate you all tuning in. Thanks for putting up with us for the last hour. And uh, I guess you won't hear from us again until after the new year. So happy new year to you all. See you next uh, year. Yeah, we'll see you next year. I can't wait to use that phrase on January the 1st. Man, last year was a crazy day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, terrible dad jokes. Football and other efforts. Thank you for listening to us as always. Please rate, review, subscribe. Tell your neighbors and friends that you listen to us. Um, and you've just been effed. A Broadway Sports Media Production.